Well, almost all of us in this room, I'm sure, have at one time or another been to the eye doctor for an eye exam. So we know that experience of looking through that big contraption with who knows how many lenses in it. And at the beginning of the eye exam, things are blurry on purpose. And they start adding lenses. They flip lenses. They keep saying one or two, one or two. And eventually some combination of the lenses starts to bring clarity to our sight. And then usually, at least this is my experience, then it starts all over again. The, the doctor goes back to square one and it's blurry again. And then there's the whole progression of one or two again and again. Sometimes you're not even sure whether it's one or two. You don't know the answer sometimes. I frequently have said, uh, neither. Or I don't know, can you do that again? Sometimes I get nervous that I may have guessed on that one. <laughs> then I get more nervous, like what does that mean? Are we now headed down a trajectory that we can't get back to? Am I getting wrong glasses again? I confess, I have about six pair of glasses that have come to me since these first came to me about 10 years ago. I just can't get them right, or they can't get them right anyway. Well, in the book of Mark, various people around Jesus see him with varying degrees of clarity, but no one sees him yet with 20-20 vision. The closest anyone has come is Peter's confession in chapter 8, verse 29. There he said, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the awaited one. And it's true. He's seeing clearly. That's good. But then, immediately after, he can't see how the Messiah could be rejected and killed and rise from the dead. As Jesus predicted he would. Just look over at chapter 8, 31, probably on the same page in your Bible. And he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter had a moment of clarity before this, but then he's almost back to square one in an instant when he rebukes Jesus for speaking of such defeat. He sees that Jesus is the Messiah the promised one, but he sees a totally different kind of Messiah than the one that Jesus came to be. Well, now in chapter 9, a whole new set of lenses comes out. Picture chapter 9 as a series of lenses put to the identity and mission of Jesus. Each one should bring clarity about who Jesus is and what his coming means. Unfortunately, our spiritual sight is so bad, naturally speaking, that sometimes a clearer lens, in this case, leaves the disciples just blinking all the harder, rubbing their eyes all the more. For those of us who have corrected vision by God's grace... This chapter, this story, this scene is a glorious moment of beauty and radiance and clarity. It's an encounter with the living and glorious Christ. For the disciples, 
I'm sure it was a bit of a frustrating eye exam. And in the end, it isn't clear whether they're any clearer about what to see. And yet we know from the rest of the Bible that one day they will see. They will see clearly who this is and what all this means. And with corrected vision, they will look back on this experience that we read of in Mark 9 with whole new eyes, with all new sight and clarity. And they will even help us to better understand it by writing about it. And we'll see that toward the end of our time together this morning. That's where we'll end up. But let's start at the beginning. The event. Jesus is transfigured. Verse 2 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, the three most inner circle of of the, the apostles, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. There are three or four things right off the bat that are very similar to Exodus 24. I won't have you turn there, but, but just listen to, to the similarities. Here we have six days, and then someone leads three people and leads them up to a high mountain to meet with God. Well, in Exodus 24, we read that a cloud had settled on Mount Sinai for six days. Then Moses, with Aaron and his two sons, so three other people, went up to the mountain, and there God spoke. The similarities are not a coincidence. Jesus and Mark, the writer, they want us to see that this is a massive moment in God's plan. In fact, it's a far bigger moment than when God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. We'll see that very clearly later on when we get to the Father speaking. But we can also see it in the fact that when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, it was God who beamed with glory. Yes, a glimpse of glory. Yes, shielded glory for Moses' sake. But it was God who was glowing with glory there on Mount Sinai. And here in Mark 9, Jesus is the one who reveals his own radiant glory. He's greater than Moses. He was transfigured. It's only one sentence. The second half of verse 2 and into verse 3. The transfiguration is described in one sentence. He was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That word transfigure or transfiguration, as you might have as a heading in your Bible, That's familiar to most Christians, but only because it's in the Bible. That's not something we commonly speak of in everyday speech. But even if you're not a Christian and if you're not familiar with the Bible, it should be fairly obvious what it means. It means his body was changed. He was transfigured. His figure was changed. In fact, the Greek word metamorphothē sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Jesus, in this passage, morphed. And it changed his clothes, or the glory shined through his clothes. His clothes were radiant and intensely white, impossibly white. They glowed, no doubt. 
Again, these aren't special clothes or different clothes. It's that his glory beneath those clothes was shining through them. It sounds similar to Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days, that's God himself, he had clothes which were white as snow. Amazingly, this jaw-dropping event is so briefly described for us. We would love to have more detail here, wouldn't we? I mean, Peter and James and John, they saw this firsthand. We would love to have them describe it with as many words as possible, perhaps. Even better, we would love to have a photograph of this, preferably HD, and a video would be even way better. But we're given just enough for us to know that this is something like God revealing a glimpse of his glory on Mount Sinai. Something like that fourth figure in the fire um, with the three Hebrew children in Daniel 3. Remember that story? The Babylonians threw the three Hebrew children in and then they looked into the furnace and they saw a fourth one and he was real shiny. That's what the VeggieTales version says. He was real shiny. And the transfiguration is something like like what Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 1. He saw a God-man who was on a throne and it was emanating bright glory. It's a glorious scene. Then appeared Elijah and Moses and they were talking with him, verse 4 says. Incidentally, Luke's account of this tells us what they were talking about. Chapter 9, verse 31 of Luke. They were talking of Jesus' departure, which was about to take place in Jerusalem. In other words, his death. They were talking about the cross. Mark doesn't record that. He just says that they were talking But why them? Why Elijah and Moses? I mean, they're undoubtedly massive figures in the Old Testament, but but there are other big figures as well. Well, I think there's like a kaleidoscope of reasons why Elijah and Moses are specifically useful in this story, this scene. Some have pointed out that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. And one way of referring to the whole Old Testament is the law and the prophets. Here's the law and the prophets personified, and they're talking to the one to whom they're handing things off. Others have noted that both Elijah and Moses, at different times, of course, spent 40 days on Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, meeting with God. And that's unique. No one else Spent 40 days on the same mountain meeting with God. And here these two are on another mountain meeting with God once again. Also, Deuteronomy 18 promised a prophet like Moses to come. A great prophet, the prophet. We know that Jesus is that prophet. So Moses being there on the mountain with Jesus is like a passing of the baton. It's a reminder of Deuteronomy 18 a prophet like Moses. Elijah also, it was thought that he would return before the great day of the Lord. That comes up later on in Mark 9, 
We'll talk about it more then, but suffice it to say for now, if Elijah shows up and then disappears on the mountain with Jesus, then there can be little doubt that Jesus isn't Elijah, which many people in Jesus' day thought. I think any or all of those are good reasons for Elijah and Moses being there, meeting with Jesus and on this mountain. Now, before we go further, I want us to grasp or try to grasp some of the significance of this scene. We will understand more significance when we work our way further into the passage this morning, but we should stop here to ponder what it signifies all by itself, the event. I can think of five rather quick observations that this scene signifies. And we can move from simple ones to more profound. One, Elijah and Moses here are validating Jesus' ministry and words. They are validating Jesus' ministry and words. It's really hard to pit the prophets against Jesus or the law against Jesus when Moses and Elijah are there apparently supporting Jesus. It'd be one thing for me to say that I'm going to I'm going to run for president in 2016. It'd be something altogether different if at my first press conference, behind me and patting me on the back was George Washington, Abe Lincoln, and JFK. That's something, isn't it? Elijah and Moses are validating Jesus' ministry in words. Secondly, Jesus' prediction of his rejection and death and resurrection is not incompatible with his glory. His rejection and suffering and death, these things are not incompatible with his glory. He just predicted that he will go to the cross. He will die. He will be rejected. But that is not incompatible with his glory of old, nor of the glory that's to come on the other side of the resurrection. Thirdly, Jesus is glorious and shows his glory. And this is loving and kind. This is so loving and kind of him to show his glory to the three of the 12 disciples. Think of the transfiguration here, not just in light of Jesus' promise that he's going to the cross, but also in light of his charge to the disciples that they also take up their own cross and follow him. They're following Jesus to his cross, and thereby they are walking into their own lion's den. They will need this vision of glory planted firmly in their minds over the next few decades that they have on this earth. They will need this vision planted firmly in their minds when they face fierce opposition to the gospel and die a martyr's death. Fourthly, the transfiguration shows us that Jesus is divine. He is a man who is also God. He did not put on glory when he shone so brightly here in Mark 9. His glory was exposed. The veil of his flesh and the veil of his coming suffering was pulled back just a bit to show the glory that was inherently there. And fifth, 
Jesus leads sinners up into heavenly places. Jesus leads sinners up into heavenly places. That's something we should conclude from from this story. You might think that that sounds like a stretch. It's not explicit in the text, I know, but hear me out. A mountain, oftentimes in Scripture, has heavenly connotations to it. When God supernaturally meets with or reveals himself to his people, he often does it on a mountain. And not because he's a nature sort of guy. It's not because mountains just have this extra spirituality about them. Or because they're more private than other places. No. It paints a picture of being brought up to God in an age where there there aren't trams or rockets or helicopters or planes. Being brought up to God and him coming down to us. The thick cloud that often appeared in moments like, like this represented God's presence. So Jesus brought Peter, James, and John, sinners like us, up into God's presence. So Jesus was transfigured. His glory shined through his clothes, radiating them. Moses and Elijah appear and talk with Jesus. How do you respond to this if you're there? What do you do next if you're them? And as you're thinking about that, maybe recall other times in Scripture when God's glory was powerfully, supernaturally revealed And what was the response of those who saw it? God showed Moses a a glimpse of his glory in Exodus 34. And it says, Moses bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. Ezekiel got a huge window into that heavenly, divine throne room. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, he said. Isaiah saw a vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, and he said, Woe is me, I am undone. Well, in verses 5 and 6 of Mark 9, we come to their response, at least Peter's. Secondly, the response, Peter speaks. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, before we're too hard on Peter, let's at first try to see this through an optimistic lens as much as possible. It was indeed good that they were there. It is good that they're there. I'm thankful that they were there, that they saw that, and that it was later recorded for us. Peter probably wanted to prolong this experience, and that's why he suggested making tents for the three of them. He's saying, let's not rush off this mountain. This is special. Let's set up camp. Let's let's stretch this out. Let's do this thing for as long as we can. Perhaps Peter was suggesting that they should memorialize this event, set up structures that would be permanent memorials for this event having happened. And that's something God's people have done many times before. They build an Ebenezer, 
a memorial. Perhaps Peter had in mind the Feast of Tabernacles. That celebrated God's presence with his people in the wilderness when they traveled in tents. It was celebrated yearly, probably not at this time. And Peter's probably saying, why are we waiting for the the actual date? Let's go ahead and do the Feast of Tabernacles right now. Any of that could have been his thinking. But there's good reason to think that Peter was not quite so reasoned in his thinking when he said what he said, whatever he was thinking. You see, Mark, the narrator, tells us in verse 6 how to understand Peter's response. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. We all know from experience that some people, when they're nervous or afraid, they get real quiet. And other people, when nervous or afraid, get real chatty and often about nothing important, right? Well, Peter is obviously the latter kind. He's terrified and he blurts out the first couple things that pop into his skull. Great to be here. Let's make some tents. Okay. That doesn't look like a terrified reaction, but Peter's just that kind of guy. They were terrified. They were terrified. By the way, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, at least not here and not in Mark. Proverbs, of course, encourages fear of the Lord. Peter, in 1 Peter, he tells us bluntly in one sentence, fear God. But in Mark's gospel account, fear is always a bad thing. It's always contrasted with faith. So Jesus said back in chapter 4, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? You see? One comes, the other one goes, and vice versa. I could show example after example in Mark of how fear indicates a lack of understanding about who this is and what this all means. And the word terrified here in chapter 9 is an intense word in the Greek. They weren't just afraid, but literally they were afraid out. That's not a saying in English. But freaked out is they were afraid out. We don't speak like that, but we would say they're freaked out. And we shouldn't be freaked out by Jesus. Though... That's not a problem for most of us. I think most of us have the opposite problem. For most of us, we're all too familiar with Jesus. Maybe even bored with Jesus. Or better, mildly amused by him. Or still somewhat interested in him. On the one hand, it's wrong to see the transfiguration like Peter, James, and John do and tremble and shake like you're the lion entering the domain of the Wizard of Oz. It's not wrong to tremble and shake because Jesus isn't great and powerful, but because he's also gracious and merciful. On the other hand, 
it's also wrong and possibly even more dangerous for us to read the transfiguration and yawn. It's wrong and dangerous if we're in a hurry this morning to get down off the mountain because it's Super Bowl Sunday and we got a lot of appetizers to make. God help us to be properly awed by Jesus and to be hungry to see his glory. Before we move on to the next point, don't forget two elements of Peter's response that were the least positive and the most telling of what he said. He addressed Jesus as rabbi, teacher, an understatement. Secondly, he suggested three tents for three prophets. He wanted to honor them equally. After that, another lens is dropped before our eyes, well, and our ears, to mix metaphors. Thirdly, the interpretation, God speaks. Here's another lens. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The problem with what Peter bursted out is that he apparently thought that Jesus was only on par with, with Elijah and Moses. Perhaps he thought he was doing something good, maybe even elevating Jesus to the lofty level of Moses and Elijah. I mean, this is the elite of the elite. Of all the Hall of Fame, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are in Peter's top three. But God does not think so. God's declaration has three parts to it, and each part has a separate Old, Test, Old Testament passage in view. This is fascinating. More accurately, it should be translated, this is my son, first part, the beloved, second part, listen to him. You see, three parts. This is my son, harkens back to Psalm 2 where God said first to David and then by extension to Jesus. You are my son, I will make the nations your heritage. Of course, Mark also has told us that Jesus is God's son in verse one and in the, the baptism of Jesus, a voice came from, from the sky and said, this is my son, you are my son, literally. With you I am well pleased. He's the son and it goes back to Psalm two. But then he says, this is my son, the beloved. In Genesis 22, God spoke to Abraham about his son, Isaac, and he called him, your son, your beloved. The beloved son. It was right then that God gave instructions for Abraham to sacrifice him. Interesting, isn't that? This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Well, this harkens back to Deuteronomy 18, that God will raise up a prophet like Moses one day, and it is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. Don't you think that Moses and Elijah are on par with my beloved and only son? And listen to him. 
Hear what he says. Follow what he says. Believe it and obey it. One powerful and clear declaration from the Father standing on three different Old Testament foundations. And if that wasn't clear enough about Jesus' utter uniqueness in God's plan, we're given a visual cue immediately after. Verse 8, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Yeah, Elijah and Moses are vanishing away. They're gone in an instant. And Jesus remains Jesus only. Well, another couple of lenses have been turned on and put on Jesus while they've been on the mountain. Things should be getting clearer for the disciples in this process, or at least the three that are with Jesus. And as they descend from the mountain now, you might expect that there'd be this glorious aha moment, glorious celebration, you know, dots being connected, light bulbs going off, even exploding, or at least a greater understanding that this kind of Messiah who glows with glory and meets with Moses and Elijah and gets affirmation from the Father that he's the only son This kind of Messiah, he can be rejected, he can be killed, and it'll be just fine. The Father accepts him, and he can be raised. He can do whatever the heck he wants, and he'll do whatever he says. You'd think that would be a conclusion they might draw, but what is their conclusion? Fourthly, their conclusion, more questions. More questions. I'm struck by the number of questions that they're asked, that they ask as they walk down this mountain with Jesus. Right conclusions seem so closely in reach, if not painfully obvious. And as they're walking down the mountain, Jesus continues to, to bring more clarity, in fact. And yet, their remaining questions are the dominant theme. See verse 9? As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The transfiguration makes no real sense apart from the cross and resurrection. It pointed to Jesus' resurrection. It was a glimpse of the resurrection glory that was to come. It tells that there is no defeat when Jesus goes to the cross because this is the beloved son. God is with him. And so Jesus says, tell no one what you saw until after the resurrection. It makes no sense until the resurrection has happened. And notice once again, he's telling them that he will die if he says, wait until after the resurrection. They did indeed keep quiet, in part because they had no idea what to make of it. This idea of a resurrection, not a resuscitation, but a resurrection, was just foreign to their thinking. Perhaps they thought Jesus was speaking in parables once again. Maybe he's talking about being raised 
to a whole new level of living or something. Apparently, they kept questioning among themselves what this was all about when Jesus wasn't around. Verse 11, they asked him another question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They ask this partly because of Malachi 4, where it says, I will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. They were probably also leaning on additional rabbinical speculation about Elijah's central role at the end of the times. You can imagine the dots that they were trying to connect with difficulty. Here's where we can maybe have some sympathy. They could be thinking, Jesus, if you're the Messiah and Elijah's supposed to come first, then where is he? And if Elijah was just here, why did he not stay? Doesn't he need to stay if this is the end of the age? Why did he go back? So Jesus answered, verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then skip to verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it's written of him. This Elijah-like figure that already has come is John the Baptist. Mark 1 made that clear. You can go and listen to that sermon if you'd like and get Maybe more clarity about how John 1, I'm sorry, how Mark 1 equates John the Baptist with the promise of Elijah, the forerunner who comes before the Messiah. Yeah, John the Baptist was that Elijah like forerunner promised in the Old Testament. And and Jesus says, and look what they did to him. What did they do? They put him in prison. And then during one of their lewd, drunken parties, They made plans to cut off his head. You can read about that in chapter 6 of Mark if you want. The implication is clear. Jesus is implying, where do you think this is going? I keep telling you. You're looking for Elijah in power and glory? I keep telling you. And I'll tell you again. In the middle of verse 12. And how is it written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Where is this written? Well, nowhere explicitly. And in the Old Testament, it's almost everywhere, implicitly. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who will also rise in in glory. Zechariah 12, on and on we could go. So what is the conclusion, or what are the conclusions that we should make about the transfiguration? Some will be review for us, some are new to us. We should conclude that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. We should conclude that he is greater by far than Moses or Elijah or anyone else. He is not just a great prophet or even in the top three. We should conclude that he is uniquely God's son and that he is God himself. We should conclude that his glory is not incompatible with his coming suffering. In fact, he gives us a glimpse of the resurrection 
and a glimpse of his glorious resurrected state, which you can read about in Revelation 1 if you'd like. There, he's white. He's white. He's glowing. He's strong and powerful and glorious. We should conclude that Jesus is glorious and he is gracious and kind to show his glory. Those first disciples, again, they needed this as they walked with him on the road to Calvary in the chapters that come ahead. They needed this as they walked their own Calvary road in the decades to follow. They needed the reminder of what's to come for them. Glories to come. Suffering first, then glory. It wasn't just for Jesus. It's also a paradigm for his followers. Suffering first, then glory. And they needed the remembrance of the experience itself. No doubt they reminded themselves over and over again that that was really true, that that really happened, that we saw it with our own eyes. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 1. Would you listen to this? 2 Peter 1, he talks about the transfiguration there. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, boom, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter said, the transfiguration more fully confirmed the prophetic word, the Old Testament prophetic word. And you say, well, which Old Testament prophetic word did Peter have in mind that was more fully confirmed by the transfiguration? Well, I don't know if you've been keeping track, but there have been seven different times that I've referred back to the Old Testament based on what Mark is showing us here in the transfiguration. In the transfiguration story, there are at least seven different allusions to Old Testament realities and glories. None of them are explicitly prophetic, but they all funnel down in a prophetic way and pointed ahead to something similar but far greater. Therefore, Peter says, we should all the more pay attention to the word. The word is coherent. The word pointed ahead and brought fulfillment. The word is trustworthy. How do I know? I saw the transfiguration. How do I know? I heard the Father's voice. Pay attention to the word. I can think of that as a proper application, a great lesson for both non-Christians and Christians. You're not a Christian? You don't know this Jesus yet? Pay attention to his coherent, historical, glorious 
word. This is not merely an ancient document, but it lives, it speaks, it cuts, it's alive. It's God's word. Get to know Jesus through it. He's God's son. Listen to him. Christian, all the more, pay attention to the word. That's Peter's application to his readers. His application of all this is the word is beautiful and glorious, and it shows you Christ. And so if you weren't around to see it, there were only three of us who were. If you weren't around to see it, you go to it. You read of it, whether in the old or in the new. Look and see, and behold, see it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. One day we will see him and we'll be like him, 1 John 3 says. Because we'll see him, we shall be changed and be like him. We don't now see him. And Peter says elsewhere, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. So therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. And until then, take to heart Paul's word in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we all, with an unveiled face now, we're beholding in God's word. We're beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image not all at once, from one degree of glory to another. Behold him, gaze upon him, and be changed by him. The Puritan John Owen asked and answered the question, how then can we behold the glory of Christ? He said, we need a spiritual understanding of his glory as revealed in scripture. Secondly, we need to think much about him if we wish to enjoy him fully. If we are satisfied with vague ideas about him, we shall find no transforming power. But when we cling wholeheartedly to him and our minds are filled with thoughts of him and we constantly delight ourselves in him, then spiritual power will flow from him to purify hearts, to increase holiness, strengthen our graces, and sometimes fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And remember as you gaze upon the beauty of the Christ that his glory is not just seen in the fact that he was transfigured that day or that he died and was raised, but that he also ascended on high and he reigns. Hebrews 4 says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession and let us then with confidence draw near up there to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. You're suffering? You're confused? Uncertain about the future? Take a good long look at the transfiguration. It's a glimpse 
of all the grand eternal glory that's to come and will be ours with him if we're his. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we praise you for your lordship, that you're a glorious king, that you're the ancient of days, that you're the ruler from Judah. You're like a lion, and yet you're merciful. You lead sinners up to heavenly places through your death and resurrection. And those of us here who know that, we love it. And we're filled with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And we pray for your help to continue to commune with you, to pray to you, to grow in our love for you, to grow in our interest of you, or even our desperation for you. Help us, Lord, to continue to sup with you, to long to see you. Give us eyes to see. Give us diligence to open your book. Give us, give us diligence and time to be before you in prayer and to sing of you in worship. Help us now as we sing of you to do so in spirit and in truth, to do so for your glory and for our good, for we need you. Amen.